Check Complete, a referee podcast, is an educational resource for referees by referees, designed to connect and develop soccer officials of all ages and skill levels to better serve the game both on and off the field. The Check Complete podcast is back with episode numero 21. Um, When we are recording this, we are a mere five days away from Christmas. I don't know when people will be listening to this sometime into the future when we're driving around in cars in the air or whatever, you know, but crazy right world. now, right now, I say, ho, ho, ho. And I'm not talking about the three people behind the camera. <laughs> <laughs> oh, humor. Anyway, um, yes, happy, happy holidays to everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Check Complete Podcast. We are excited to have another wonderful episode. And if you think it's anything other than that, uh, go scream it to a pillow or something. I don't want to hear about it. Uh, so we have our co-host today is Logan Clark. We'll get to him in just a moment. We have another episode of Coffee with Christina where we talk about error correction and recovery. Um, so for referees that are mere mortals uh, that make mistakes, I don't know what that's all about. But she and I talk through that for those that, that when we have something in our game that doesn't go as we had hoped, uh, an error is made, what can we do to recover from that and to continue on a high level of performance? And then we are very excited to have, not that we're not excited to have you here, Logan, we are, but we're very excited to have the man behind Inside Video Review, uh, the Greg Barkey, who's going to be joining us um, via Zoom here shortly. Super excited to have that conversation with him, uh, especially coming off of the World Cup, where we saw um, more intervention or at least more usage of technology than we have ever seen before. Uh, as far as the semi-automated offside. So we'll talk about some of that. We'll talk about the uh, efficiency of VAR and the MLS, where they're at with that process, as well as hear some of Greg's story and have what I'm sure will be a rich, luscious conversation. So good times ahead. Uh, but Logan, thanks for being here. Of course. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm very excited about this. Uh, Logan, you are how old? I am 20 now. He's 20. He's a mere youngster, a whippersnapper, yep. if you will, spring chicken of sorts. Um, so how how did you get started refereeing? So I actually started um, before most. So I started when I was 10 years old. 10? 10. So I beat the age requirement of 12 at the time. Yeah. Sometimes it's not what you know, it's who you know. That's, so yeah. my uh, fourth grade teacher's husband, uh, you guys may know, uh, Lone Elm Soccer Complex mm-hmm. out in Olathe. Um, the Rush uh, Rec League is where I started. Okay. So I actually got certified when I was 10. LJ and Ellen were my instructors okay. at MNU. Um, so I started there, and from 10 to 12, I was doing rec leagues like U6s, U9s. There you go. So oh, LJ oh. and Ellen are two legendary instructors. Yeah. We'll call them that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the MNU that he aforementioned is Mid American Nazarene University, a local. College where really truly legends graduate from. Yes, of course. Yes. So especially they, ones that wear their Santa suits to sports. Games. That's correct. Yeah. We won't talk about that. <laughs> anyway, so you so you went to that class at at the ripe young age of ten. Of ten. That's wild. Yeah. Okay. So then you started with the Rush Recreation yep. Program. So I was there ten to twelve, um, pretty okay. much every weekend doing just rec league and then tournaments and then. Moved over to Heartland when I became of age of 12, and then yeah. worked my way up through Heartland. Then the goal was State Cup at the time. I made it to State Cup, and then kind of everything that followed. 
So when you start, let's go back slightly. When you okay. started with the Rush program, that's was like a one man. Yep, one man. Right, like little five v five kind of things. Okay, and then you made it to the big leagues. The big leagues, Heartland, Heartland. right? The Heartland Soccer Association, the largest youth league in the country, uh, here in Kansas City. Now that's expanded over four complexes and these other complexes as well as needed for tournaments and things like that. So massive, massive group. Um, so you started doing Heartland games, and then you did. So then from there you started getting seen and and given opportunities at yep. first tape. So what was that like? That getting what, what was the the key to success to get into that? Yeah. Channels? So um, obviously I started on the smaller fields, the seven v seven, nine v nine, right? Games, um, and then the mentor program that we have um, mm -hmm. in Kansas actually helped a lot. I remember um, Lauren Saunders actually one of our was mentoring one of my games and, uh, you know, put in a good word for me. Yeah. And that kind of moved me up onto, like, the 11 the 11 fields. Yeah. Um, and then that's kind of where I had more mentoring opportunities, more opportunities to be seen that then brought me in the opportunity to, you know, move up into the state cup kind of aspect of things where then I was seen to be picked for regionals and, you know, right. other events. Right. Well, and I ask... You and I dig into that a little bit because I know there's people not just in our state, but there's people across the country that are wondering how do I level up? How do I get into that next level? What do I need to do? Who do I need to see? Who needs to see me? All that kind of stuff. So, um, what I'm hearing and what you're saying is some more senior level officials saw you. Yep. The mentoring piece was huge. So for states that are already have a mentoring program in place, that's a huge channel for not only just individual growth, but the opportunities. That can provide that can be provided to those who are working hard, and growth comes out of that. Right. So, are, were there any other factors for you? I mean, a lot of it's probably just your own tenacity. Yeah. Right. So it started. It started just kind of like kind of like most at a young age. It started as a job. Um, right. But then once I think I was thirteen or fourteen, kind of my first or in between first and second year out at Heartland, I kind of got that. You know. It kind of hit me, and I fell in love with what it was doing, and yeah. it became more than just a job, and it was like a passion to me. And yeah. So, you know, and then having the opportunities that others would give me, and the feedback they gave me to improve it, you know, and then working on that and improving, it felt good to me. Yeah. So. Yeah. Was the you may have already answered this, and I and I had zoned out because there. I'll be honest, there was a moment when you were talking there where I I completely zoned out, but I listened to most of it. So. If there was there a moment that the 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 switch was flipped for you, was there something that was like, hey, this isn't just a job. I actually really like this. Yeah, it was between my first and second year out at Heartland. I don't know what caused it to happen. I don't know yeah. why it happened. I can't remember that far back, but I know that's when it happened. And something did. Yeah. yeah. And I'm glad it did. Well, I mean, we are too. We we're in, in our state, we're, we're extremely proud of you, and there's a, a blindingly bright future for you. But it's interesting because we've we've had those conversations. Um, yep. A lot of us in Kansas and beyond of just trying to figure out what is that, and it feels a bit like like catching lightning in a bottle, yep. right? It's extremely hard. It's it's difficult to know what's going to push which buttons on which person. Right. It's different for everybody. It is, and so. But it's interesting when you have these conversations to go, what was it for you? That way we know we can maybe bark up that tree with others to see if we can get that yeah. to be a, a, a moment where a, a light switch flips on of sorts. So um, so you've already talked about our second question a little bit about your referee journey. What have been some of the hallmark characteristics for you 
um, the standout moments? Maybe that's good, bad, and ugly. I don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, like, it's taken me places that I never thought I would ever go. Yeah. Like, when I was 16, I went and did an ECNL event out in South Carolina. Just yeah. me. Didn't have anybody go with me, so. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all the regional events, going to St. Right. Louis, Ohio, Indiana. The really exotic places. The really world. exotic places in the world. Yeah. Lot to see, lots to see there. Yeah. Cincinnati Zoo is great. Highly recommend. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, no, but, you know. Harambe. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> yeah. But... You know, doing things, working my way up, um, you know, starting with, you know, even if it's minor things like the Alphabet Soup League we have here, so like yeah. ECNL, NPL, stuff like that, but right. then going into, you know, kind of like the USL2s, the NPSL. Mm-hmm. Like, so recently I had the opportunity to do the Des Moines Menace in their conference semifinal, mm-hmm. which was by far the highest level game I've ever done. And so it was something that I will likely remember for the rest of my life. Right. And it's thanks to refing that I have those memories and the bonds that, you know, I've created with people along the way, like you and the three gentlemen behind the camera. So Yeah. Right. Right. So bonds with me is important. Yeah. Very. Yeah. Very. Yeah. Good. I just want to make I wanted to make sure we picked that up on tape about how important I am. <laughs> but no. Um, no, very good. It, it does provides you a lot of opportunities, a lot of friendships. Um Opportunities to travel, to connect with people. I mean, you've been able to build relationships. I know um, this is calling back one episode, two episodes, when we talked with Paul Scott. Mm-hmm. You were able to participate in the program last spring at Dallas Cup. Correct. So you were part of the NPSL. What did they call that? The NPS. It was an NPSL Academy. Academy. Yep. Okay, gotcha. Um, so it was an NPSL Academy where the NPSL funded this whole thing. Yep. And provided an opportunity for how many referees were in that? I think at the time it was uh, ten, no, twelve. Twelve. 12. I yeah. was I was gonna say twelve. Twelve. I was gonna say twelve. For those keeping score at home, that's one for Gordy. Um, twelve. Twelve referees. Yep. Um, All from different states. And it was Paul and I'm blanking on who else was there. Kim Oberly. Kim Oberly. Um, so, so there was a more, it's kind of an intensive of sorts. Yep. You worked games, you had classroom sessions, all that kind of stuff. Yep. Individualized so, feedback as well, which was very helpful from yeah. people of their stature. Right, right, absolutely. So you had a lot of opportunity. I mean, that, that right there is a really cool opportunity yeah. to work with those names and, and to build the relationships with some of those people that you have friends, you're now considered friends with, right? And they're from all over the country. Yep. It wasn't just a regional thing. It was, they're spread out, right? And that, that's just... And so I guess, I mean, we could clip this and, and use it for recruiting and promoting and retaining officials. But these are the opportunities. And for those of you watching this that are already referees, it's like, yeah. I mean, we could, we could reiterate the story over and over again. We could plug in a different person, different cities, but it's that same camaraderie, that beauty that comes with this. But for those that are on the, on the fence, if you've got somebody that's like, hey, I don't know, maybe this is an opportunity to show them, hey, go, come watch this incredible podcast and, and hear a little bit of Logan's story. So you're, you're in a dis, an interesting season of life right now. You're in college. I'll let you say, where do you go to school? Um, and so you're, not only are you, are you in college, you're playing collegiate soccer. Correct. Division three. Division NCAA, three. Yep. NCAA Division three. And you're also still actively officiating, or at least trying to. Trying to, yes. Right? So talk to us about that. Where are you in school? Uh, I go to Nebraska Wesleyan University, located in Lincoln, Nebraska. Okay. Um, it's a small institution, less than 2,000 people. 
But, yeah. You know, it's been good for me so far. Um, the playing side of things have been great. Um, I came into a program that was on a rebuild. Um, so we had a big group in my recruiting class. It was like 12 or 13 guys. Yeah. Um, this year we saw success in that rebuild, making it to semifinals of our conference and having a historic record yeah. um, for the program. And so that was good to see. So we have a bright future because we're a young team. Um, but yeah, the officiating part of it, you know, with having practice five, six days a week, it's hard right. to get out there and do games, but I still try, you know, like I'll do college games up there when I can. Um, not in your conference. Not in my conference, no. Even right. though I'm on that list, no. Yes, right. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it's cool It's cool to go where our, our conference is. Um, so we're in the American Rivers Conference, so just a bunch of Iowa schools, but... You know, most of the games that we have played, I've known someone on the crew. On the crew. Right. And so it's been cool to see because it's people that, like we said, from other states that you meet at events, right. you know, that you have that bond with and you can say hi, carry on a conversation before or after the game, whatever it is. Right. So, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, and send them videos of the, the grave injustices that yeah. happened to you and your team. Yep. Yeah, hold long longstanding grudges. Anyway, so... <laughs> Yeah, very good. Very cool. Um, so you're continuing to navigate that. I know we had some conversations about what that's like to play and to referee at the same time. And um, I think there's probably, I would think it would be safe to say there's probably others in your boat, right? That yes. Started to succeed at refereeing and now we're facing this whole, like, what do I do in college? I'm going to go play collegiately. How can I do that kind of stuff? Are, are there any words of wisdom for those? Yeah, so I had that debate as well when I was deciding whether I wanted to continue playing or just officiate. Mm -hmm. um, so I actually reached out to a couple people. I uh, reached out to Kyle Atkins because um, mm -hmm. he said he did like club soccer at K-State when mm -hmm. he was there. Right. Um, and I also reached out to Corey Rockwell and just asked for advice. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because I was at the time when I was committing that, you know, I was being seen at regional events, being picked to do things right. um, like USL, NPSL, stuff like that. So I was like, I don't want those opportunities to go away. Mm -hmm. But for me, the biggest thing was you only go through college once. You can't mm -hmm. go back. Refereeing will always be there for you. Right. And so if you still enjoy the game and you love the game, go play. If you have the opportunity to play, play. Because right. that opportunity is only there one time. Yeah. So, And that was what they both, you know, right. said to me, and it's something that stuck with me, and it's something that I tell people that are in the same boat that I am, or I was, debating right. that idea. That's what right. I tell them. That's good. That's good stuff. Well, we're glad that you stuck with it. Um, we're glad that you still make some time for it, but we're also cheering for you as you are a college student and a college athlete, which I'm sure will probably shape the way you referee games too. Mm -hmm. Now, playing at that collegiate yeah. level, that probably informs, would that be fair to say? Yeah, it's shaped, refereeing has shaped the way I play. I play in a smarter way, in a sense, not that I play to get away with things, sometimes, right. don't tell anybody, but um, right. it's made me more educated in the game to right. be successful in the way I play. Right. And then that transforms vice versa the other way right. with refereeing as well, so. Right. It's good stuff. Logan Clark, folks. Um, just the best of the best. We well, appreciate you, your time. Yeah, and we're excited to continue to see you grow and develop 
as a student and an athlete, but also as a referee and support you along the way. So that's exciting. Thanks for your time today. Of course. Thank you. Yeah. So we'll move now to, uh, we'll take a short break and then we'll move to our segment, Coffee with Christina, talking about error correction and recovery. The Check Complete podcast is brought to you in part by JF Consulting Tax Preparation and Bookkeeping. Taxes suck. We can help. back with coffee with Christina here we are and uh, yes we're in the same clothes because we're recording these one after <laughs> another we're just gonna own that that these are recorded one after another I thought I about changing it. my hair to at least look a yeah. little different I thought about changing too like when I go to the, the mall and go to try the different samples in the food court like put a mustache on or a hat so they're mm-hmm. like this fatty's back for three rounds of teriyaki Costco, chicken just laughing. <laughs> yeah Oh, what is this? Orange chicken? I haven't had it the first four times, you know. Anyway, so last week we discussed um, routines. We yeah. talked about routines. This week we're talking about error correction or error recovery. Yeah. Okay. Um, errors are, especially in our line of work, are, are going to happen. We obviously are doing everything we can through the Check Complete podcast and many other resources to reduce the amount of errors. Decision accuracy obviously is a huge part of our job, but um, errors are, are going to happen and are probably under more scrutiny than, it always makes me laugh, like I'll see someone like miss kick a ball and I'm like, why isn't anyone yelling at them? Screaming. For, right? for doing that. They're like, oh, yeah. okay, next time, Johnny. I'm like, if I made a call that bad, I would be chased off the field, mm-hmm. right? Um, so anyway, that, that piece, it, it seems to be you know, a heightened, heightened issue amongst us. So talk to us about what, what your conversations are you know, with athletes and coaches, and we'll see how we can connect that with officials. As far as yeah. Well, going. the first part of what you already said is errors are going to happen. And I think there's a level of perfectionism that athletes face, um, whether it be from coaches, parents, themselves, their own expectations, that is probably similar with officials maybe you don't expect perfection because you are so loudly criticized so it's like in the forefront of your mind a little bit more than maybe athletes do but the first part is planning how to face failure um, Mm -hmm. in small doses like a missed call instead of viewing it as this catastrophic event where you're going to I don't know not be able to call the rest of the match in a way that is up to your standards. So not planning to fail, but planning the failure piece of, oh, okay, I knew this was going to happen, or I've planned for this, I can move forward, versus just being so shocked that a parent's yelling at you, right? Like, if you have that knowledge ahead of time, you're not shaken when perfectionism isn't matched. Yeah. Well, I think... Yes, I do think that people in our line of work understand some of the perfection. But I, I mean, I feel that. I mean, you, you go into a game and you don't, you don't want to, to miss things, right? Yeah. <laughs> no matter what anybody says, <laughs> no one in our line of work wants to miss anything. And I would say the majority of the time, 99.9% of the time, no one comes in with any sort of an agenda. So it's not like we're missing things yeah. on purpose, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, you don't live for screaming parents and coaches. No. I mean, so it's like, 
you know, I, there's no match fixing going on at, at U12, at, oh, you know, the local fields, right? I yeah. Hope, I hope not. That's a lot of energy on your on yes. your end, if there is. You give us a penalty. I'll give you a ten dollars Starbucks card. You know, you're that's one drink now, so that's not worth it. It's not even worth it. So, um, but but I mean, I go in and, and it, it is it is hard. Like even watching my games back or things like that, you go. Oh, I missed that. I didn't. Uh, it hurts. You right. don't want to do that. So what you're saying is not necessarily going, going. Well, I'm going to give myself five kicked call. You know, yeah. but it's it's the mental preparation of okay, if slash when mm-hmm. something goes not as I planned and I make a mistake, I'm prepared and ready to go. That's kind of what you're talking about, right? Yeah. So for some officials, um, and you can give me a few examples of different calls that you might um, miss or if you make incorrectly. But if you have similar coaches or teams that you're officiating against, maybe there's a preparation of, hey, last time there was some of this going on and I felt like I missed it. Or maybe there was um, a big play where they're now going to be looking because last time this happened. Um, So part of the preparation is knowing, just like a team would, knowing your opponent. So knowing the teams that you have, maybe you know Johnny has a dad that you're going to hear chirping all the time, and that might impact you, which when we talk about attention and things like that, that'll also help. But for error recovery, when you aren't caught off guard by a screaming parent because, like, You've, co- you've repped them how many right. times? I think there's a level of comfort in that of I still can be frustrated, but all the other things coming at me, I can kind of roll through a little easier. Right. right. Sure. And I think um, I know the criticism that could come from this is, well, you've got rabbit ears. You were expecting us to do this when we finally. So let's say we have an issue with a coach or an assistant coach that we knew going into it, this person has a track record. Sure. And it's interesting because I had these conversations like, um, you know, coaches, they're, they, they they will say, wow, we got stuck with this guy again. Okay. Well, what I'll say, and I had this with a, a, a coach a couple years ago with an official, they were like, oh, you know, we, we always get this guy and this and this and this. I go, do, wouldn't you want a fresh slate from us? Like, you wouldn't want us carrying things from game to game. Yeah. Like, from what you saw. Like, we had you a month ago. This happened. You're like, you know what? You, you'd want a fresh slate from us. We want a fresh slate from you. So there is an element of that. Yeah. But it, it, it also, you don't just go in blindly. You have that yeah. in the back of your mind that, okay, this guy or this gal can tend to be more vocal. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, these set of parents tend to be a lot more animated and maybe unruly. And yeah. so we don't go in looking for it, perhaps, but we right. go in with an awareness of it. Is that a fair way to put that? Yeah, and I think it, some of it is similar to a team preparing for an opponent they know well. Yeah. Um, so maybe instead okay. of focusing on the way the coach coaches or the way the parents interact with you, it's the style of play, right? Yeah. So if you are aware that this team plays a certain way and the team they're playing plays differently, knowing, okay, when I officiate these types of teams, um, these are the types of calls that I need to be yeah, ready for. Right, right. These are, And it might not have anything to do with the crowd or the, the coaches or the players right. per se. It might be the game itself. Yeah. Um, I think that's the way you can prepare versus having this like, 
uh, anticipatory uh, reaction to right. outside sources. I think that's more staying focused despite those things. Yeah. Well, I think that this goes to doing your research. We talk about this with our officials. And nowadays, that's more and more accessible at mm-hmm. many levels. There's opportunities to see game film or there's opportunities to, to know going in. Uh, I mean, I think about it that we're, we're still in college postseason stuff, but... Um, you know, it, it's almost like the World Cup thing. You know, th- those referees know, okay, this team, they're they're good with a win or a tie. Yeah. So it's going to change their tactics, you know, mm-hmm. potentially. This team has to win, and they have to win by four goals. Right. Or so, there's goal differential things. So then you go, okay, this is where we understand tactically why this team is delaying restarts or they're taking a long, you know, they're taking a long time for throw-ins or goal kicks or something because they're more than content with this thing being 0-0. Zero, zero. Right. Um, or even knowing, I mean, we think about it, some of it are in our collegiate level and just in Kansas City, we know, okay, there's one team that they're going to connect passes and build out of the back and, and have it be methodical. Then there's other teams where it's just like they're cramming it down your throat. Yeah. It's very direct. It's very physical. And so going into the game knowing, okay, I know what I'm going to get, right? Yeah. This game is going to be physical. There's going to be a lot of aerial challenge. There's going to be a lot of balls over the top versus ping, 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 ping. Mm-hmm. It's like methodical moving yeah. the ball off the field. And that, so that I think is not a foreign concept to anyone that's been in officiating for right. any length of time is understanding um, what what that looks like going into it. So the, the error recovery piece um, seems to connect with that right, that you're going in going, okay, I know what, what type of challenges I might see. Yeah, right? and you know what your weaknesses might be as an official right. based on those things or your strengths are. Because I think sometimes what throws you off your game might be you're really strong in making certain calls or seeing certain things, mm-hmm. and if you miss those. I think it's one thing oh, when sure. like you have a weakness and you're like, I can recover from that. But when you know what you are really good at calling and you mm-hmm. make an error there, those are things that you also have to prepare for by knowing, hey, this team's really physical. There's probably a way for me to get my footing again and be able to, mm-hmm. to respond in a positive way. Right. Yeah. I think the thing for, like, to connect it to my own experience, not that my experience is, but just for the sake of our conversation to collect it, connect it very specifically to soccer officiating. I think for me, I look at some of my strong suits is my ability to connect with people and to manage players and coaches and things like that. Mm-hmm. Be able to use my words, de-escalate situations. So when I feel like the errors that are most difficult for me to recover from are the moments in which I feel like I screwed up being able to manage a frustrated situation. Yeah. Where I'm like, I actually poured gasoline on that fire, right? <laughs> right. You know, or I just went and gave a yellow card for something that, you know what, I probably could have been more empathetic mm-hmm. and been a better listener and been able to diffuse that without having to burn a caution or something like right. that. I think for me, those are that's where where my mind went when you said analyzing your strengths and your weaknesses yeah and where I feel most disappointed like my week you know if I'm like okay I'm not the stealthiest fastest person so if I get beat down the field and I don't have a clear look at something I'm gonna be pissed but it's not gonna shock <laughs> but you. I'm gonna be like okay you know what you know whatever I, I can deal with that because I worked you know I did as much as I could yeah I did everything within my control mm-hmm. and I ended up at least in that moment now maybe there it does point to some things where you're like okay maybe you could lose 20 pounds <laughs> you know whatever it is okay but uh, you're not condoning that. no no but you know <laughs> but everything that I did with within my control was 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 right I mean everything I could do and and I gave the best possible yep. 
outcome based on my skill set. But I think then, like you're saying, the thing that rattles my cage the most, that's hard for me to recover, is to go, did I really manage that situation right? Somebody mm -hmm. who prides themselves on the ability to communicate and de-escalate and listen, when it doesn't go as planned, that's hard for me. Yeah. So let's create a routine for you. Because you've already kind of created your own routine with ones that, like, it's down the field, you listed all of these things as to how you can recover from that quickly because mm -hmm. you knew that wasn't your strong suit, but you know you can make all these other calls and still have a really strong game. Right. So you poured gasoline on a situation and you didn't mm -hmm. mean to. Um, if you are still thinking about that, right, mm -hmm. during the rest of the game, you are going to have a hard time calling a clean game, right. most likely, right? right. So in athletics one of the things i would say to a player is if you're going to ruminate on this right the way you move on is you have to have a physical symbol to like move on from it so you see in gymnastics if a um an athlete falls from a balance beam they like wipe their hands take a deep breath and get back up right mm. you see a baseball pitcher maybe touch the mound right and mm. and throw some dirt whatever that looks like they're getting rid of it um, in volleyball, if my libero is off the floor, I tell them that they can be pissed about it as long as they're holding their water bottle. But when they put their water bottle down and are ready to go back in, they're not allowed to hold on to that anymore. Interesting. So yeah. in officiating, what could that be for you in that situation? That's a great question. Something to tangibly, mm -hmm. you know, maybe Again, connecting that physical and that mental piece together. Right, right. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'd have to think about that. I, I'd be, that's something to be able to let go of that. I mean, we talk about one of the things that we've heard people at the higher level say is the 24-hour rule, like after a game. If you find yep. out you did something wrong, mm -hmm. you, you missed a decision, there was something, even if it was minor, but especially things that are more catastrophic that could have game outcome impact. Yeah. You give yourself 24 hours either way. I look at it and I nailed it. You give your yeah. 24, 24 yeah, you hours. You don't get to keep doing this right. for you a week. You give yourself 24 that. hours to look at it and go, yeah. And you, <laughs> you watch it. You send yeah. it to everybody. But then, but conversely, right? Like on the other side, if you had something where you really kicked it, you give yourself 24 hours, but yep. then you move on. So I think more in the moment, that's a really, I'd have to think about that. Because officials um, don't get to like go to the sideline and. Right. Hang out for a second or so mm -hmm. it it's whatever that looks like in the moment. Maybe it's controlling your breath. Maybe it's a taking a deep breath in, exhaling quickly and moving on. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's having a self talk uh, phrase. Mm -hmm. Again, in your own voice, something that is in your own verbiage, right? That means something to you. Uh, to where you can just say it and maybe you even say it out loud and in the third person. So you're telling yourself something. Mm -hmm. So like Gordy we're moving on, whatever that looks like. Right. And then you aren't allowed to revisit it until the game is over. Right. And then you can start your 24 hour clock if that works for you as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there's kind of be, there's two sides to this almost because you're gonna have a good chunk of games for a good chunk of our audience are working games without communication devices where they're mm -hmm. communicating with their crew. Um, but then there's gonna be a chunk of us that get the opportunity in our career at some point to work games where we're connected by communication devices with our assistant referees and that kind of yeah. thing. So maybe those are opportunities to be able to, especially if there's people that you work with, like I've got some people that I know really well yeah. that can read my body language, mm -hmm. you know, and I'll even say things like, yep. hey, I will check in with you visually as well as verbally if we're on communication devices 
But visually, if we're not a communication device, I will check with you visually at prolonged dead balls. So if the ball goes dead and we're substituting, I'm gonna look at both my assistant referees and I will give a, a wave and a thumbs up. Yeah. If you don't see me doing that, I'm in my own head. Okay. And I need you to do something to get me out of my own head. Yeah. And so maybe those are those kinds of things where, and that's usually a result of an error mm -hmm. or a perceived error on, yeah. my, on my behalf. Um, and athletes do the same thing. You'll see um, an athlete make sure to make physical contact. You see it in foul shooting. Mm -hmm. If they make their shot or miss, they like put their hands out and wait for every one of their teammates that's on the floor with them to high five them. And yeah. that's them to reset and go again. Or maybe yeah. they're stepping away from that line and coming back up. So for you, if you have a crew that you know really well, that can be part of it. Bigger right. games, you're probably not walking into an officiating crew that you've never met before. And so mm -hmm. if you can have that um, camaraderie of, hey, like maybe at halftime you tell them what's going on and right. you need to look for X, Y, Z in the second half. Right. And if you don't know your officiating crew, you know yourself. And I think setting some yeah. standards for yourself is important. And here, what I'm hearing and what you're saying too is, you know, you guys with um, coaches and players, you have your pregame routines and things. Mm -hmm. We have to go to go back to a routine concept from last week, but we have our pregame conversation, and yeah. that's gonna that's gonna vary in length based on our time. So that probably bumps A, B, and C. If you yeah. don't know what we're talking about, go back to last week and yeah. watch that. Um, but I think that's a conversation that happens before the game. Yep. You know, you go, and it, it depends on the level, but like, you know. Uh, a lot of youth games where they're 30 minutes before. We just got over our state cup. We went in there an hour before, which might feel a little excessive. College, it could be an hour, hour and a half, sometimes two hours, depending on where you're working. Um, but that is so that we don't feel rushed and we can have those conversations yep. to be able to go, okay, if things don't go as planned, mm -hmm. if errors occur, and that could be an opportunity to be, but that, that does feel, uh, that feels especially if you're working with people who don't know, that feels really vulnerable, right? Yeah, and I think there is a community that probably every official has or is working to have um, to where you can check in before and after games if you're not working with them. Mm -hmm. like, so as a coach, I have a group of coaches that we check in with each other, big wins, big losses. When I was in the NCAA, we would check in on certain days because we'd watch each other's games you right. know, on the weekends and then check in. And so there's a level of that too yeah. for the bigger error recoveries, right? But in the moment, you think about athletes, a coach can't hold their hand in that moment. They need them to move on and find a way. We can deal with it later. We can fix it later. And so as an official, maybe there's this range of missed calls where you can address it later. Maybe there are bigger ones that you can't and we need to have some connection with the crew that we're with. Mm -hmm. But if it's a quick missed call and now you know you're going to be thinking about it way too much, what can you, maybe it's, you tighten your shoelace. Maybe it's you straighten sure. your sock and you just are like, I am letting go of this. Or it's controlling your breath and saying something. I think those controllable factors allow you to intentionally face it. And then whatever that crew responsibility is, if you're with close friends or maybe post game, mm -hmm. those things can help build towards that of how can I fix it going forward? Yeah. But you can't change that it happened in the moment. You've got right. to find a way to continue on to to do your best for the whole entire uh, match that you have. Right, right. One of the things I like to do is give the nearest player a wedgie. I find that that... Luckily, he never makes errors. So he's, <laughs> he never does it. 
This has been really, really good um, because I think this this is something that I think a lot of officials struggle with. You know, it's the the error or the perception of error, mm-hmm. you know, big reactions from players, because coaches, crowd. The whatever. error might not have even been that bad, but parents are going to make it feel right. worse. I'm a parent, I understand, but there's this illuminating factor that I think officials then feel this undue pressure on them for something that might have easily been moved on if they were in an empty field. Right, right. Yeah, yeah really good stuff. So this was Error Recovery, Coffee with Christina. Next week, we're going to talk about attention and focus. Yeah. yeah, that'll be fun. Especially, I know some of you are going, yeah, I've worked some of those games where you're like, I'm pinching myself to stay awake. <laughs> yeah. uh, so maybe more broadly than that, than just trying to find ways to stay engaged. But attention and focus, which is is huge, I think. Um, well, we'll talk about it. Yeah. There you go. Thank you. The Check Complete Podcast is brought to you in part by JF Consulting Tax Preparation and Bookkeeping. Taxes suck, we can help. Well, I am very excited to sit down virtually uh, through the wide world of Zoom with uh, Greg Barkey. Greg, um, Greg is, he's he's got a lot of titles here. He's got a lot of things. So he's a former FIFA AR. Um, he's uh, pros manager of video review currently. So many of you have seen him on a week by week basis in his inside video review videos. So we just feel very honored to have him here with us today. Um, and then we've learned some other things about uh, Greg in our pre-call conversation. Uh, you worked for Telemundo, so we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, you were a, a high school Spanish teacher. You grew up in Argentina and an avid bird watcher. Actually, I think I made that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that ain't happening. I'm not avid working any birds. No, no birds. Just maybe the ones that you're about Maybe to Netflix I'm, when I'm not working. <laughs> a turkey bird that you're about to carve into, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so you, before we get into some of the questions on here, your your background's fascinating. So you, you grew up in Argentina. You were yeah, there from I, what age to what age? I was from six and a half to 14. My, my parents were missionaries and we lived in the interior. I'll tell you, it's called Santiago del Estero. Unless you're from Argentina, you have no idea where that is. Yeah. Um, so it's a, way in the area, it's a poor area. We lived there. Um, and I learned to play soccer in the streets. That's how I learned to speak Spanish. My parents just said, go out and play with the kids. And I'd go out there. And if you had a ball, you had friends in Argentina. Yeah. I had a ball. And so I had lots of friends until it was time to go home. And then you had to kind of argue with everybody. Hey, I have to go home, take the ball with you, you know, but that's how I learned. Um, I really didn't play organized soccer until I came back to the United States when I was 15. So it was always just playing in the streets. Um, I, I, in many ways growing up that young, I, I speak Spanish with an uh, Argentine accent. Um, I learned it in the streets. I mm. did get in trouble sometimes because I come in and tell my parents a new word I that boys had taught me. And then I'd get grounded for a couple of days because I, <laughs> yeah. I had no idea what the word meant. The kids thought it was hilarious that I was going around saying it was a, still a kind of an English accent. But um, so I, I have a, a kind of a heart for Argentina, having grown up there for, for so long and, and very formative years. Um, I'm a fan of Independiente, so people from Argentina wouldn't understand that type of thing. <laughs> yeah. But I was, I, of course, very excited about the World Cup final. That was my second team. U.S. is my first team. I Like I told you before, glad I saw Argentina win their second World Cup. My next one is to see the United States win the World Cup. So I hope to li- live long enough to see that. <laughs>
and stuff. And if that happens, I'll be crying and and you know jumping up and down like the Argentines were today too. Yeah, what four million or six million people in the streets of Buenos Aires all yeah. over the place. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. Well, expected by me. So. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I, I'm curious when you made when you moved back to the states and you started playing organized soccer in the United States. What was that transition like from playing in Argentina to now organized soccer in the United States? Well, it, it was strange because in Argentina it was just always whoever showed up. A couple rocks were the goals, maybe some yeah. sticks, you know. And it was make teams and play dirt. I don't remember ever playing like on a grass field, right? You know, you know that, and so. All of a sudden, you're playing a grass field and organized. And I was obviously better than most of the American kids at that point, you know, because right. it was in Fort Collins, Colorado. If anybody uh, knows the Fort Collins Arsenal, I was on the very first team that they ever made. My parents helped organize that club. It's a big club now. Um, right. But uh, we... My, okay, no, keep going. Sorry. And so basically, my parents and a couple of our parents helped organize the first soccer club in Fort Collins, Colorado, because I wanted to play. And I came this close to not playing because if they didn't organize the soccer club, I was going to go out for football, American football. Oh, and I did. I did it in the end. So as a kicker, would you find yourself where are you going to? Are you like are you like on the line of scrimmage? You going to? No, I'm an athlete. So, you know, at that point, that time in my life, I would play anything. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I probably would have been a wide receiver or something. Mm -hmm. I would love fortunately for me. I was always fast. So for the fitness test that we that all referees take, the, the the speed parts were the easy part for me. It mm. was the long distance stuff that I struggled with pretty much all my career. I don't the older people understand, remember the Cooper test and then the also the um six and three quarter laps that you had to do. You know, that part was always difficult for me, but the sprints, if they were a piece of cake, you know, and I, I didn't mind that out part at all. But then when you get older, you get slower. Yeah, yeah. And ibuprofen becomes more prominent. So yeah, it does. In fact, I took some just just before this started, not because I thought you were going to cause me pain or something, but because <laughs> I came from playing it was the over fifty team at an indoor place, and so I thought if I don't take some ibuprofen now, I'm going to not be able to sleep tonight. So <laughs> that's right. There you go. Well, and this is slightly off script, but you know, thinking about growing up in Argentina, playing soccer there. I know we talk about uh, there's the the national conversation about how we improve as a national team and be able to compete on the world stage. Is some of that just the in these other countries, there is this truly grassroots love for the game where you get out and you just play together. Whereas out here and I even have conversations with local coaches when I'm out and about that they're like, these kids don't really love the game. And it seems like in other parts of the world, there's this this absolute love and give us a ball and we'll play anywhere. Well, I think that's one of the issues that U.S. soccer has to d- deal with. To me, you know, if you drove down the street in Argentina, you would see a little field between two houses and 10 kids just playing with a ball, maybe not even a, a ball that's, <laughs> that has air in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Here, unless you have a parent and a coach and cones stuff, yeah. they don't play, you know, and I think that's the one thing we need. It's just free play soccer. That's why I don't know if, if you've ever been to Red Bull Arena um, in, in uh, Harrison, New Jersey. But as you drive down there, they have um, in in there they have this one caged in soccer field. It's a little turf field. It's small size, like seventy seven size. It is always full with just kids playing, and you can see it's nothing organized. No one's got uniforms on. There's like you don't know whose team's on whose. 
But to me, that's what we need all over the country is these little cages where yeah. kids can just go in there with three, four guys and just have fun, try to meg each other, you know, all that sort of stuff, which we just don't do here. Right. I mean, if I went down to my park on the weekend, there's not going to be any kids playing just for the fun of it. You know what I mean? There'll be there'll be a coach there with maybe 10 players, cones set out, and they're doing their thing. But to this see, you know, a couple guys that put some rocks on both sides and made a little, little goals in their plane. We just don't do that here. And I think it's the biggest thing that we miss out on. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's talk on your, let's talk about your referee story, your referee journey before we get into your current roles and, and, and all that that entails. So where did you get started? How did you get started as, as uh, an official? Cause you were in love with the game. You were a player. How did you transition to the dark side? Quote unquote. Yeah. Um, as you know, I mean, missionaries are poor. Yeah. <laughs> so when we came back to the United States, I went to high school in Fort Collins and I went, I went to Bethel University in Minnesota mm. and I had to pay for my education. And a guy said, hey, there's a referee course. Want to come? We can make some money on the weekend refereeing. And we know soccer. So I went and believe it or not, it happened to be a course that was run by Fotis Bazakos's father. Wow. I didn't know who Fotis was. I didn't know his father, but he ran the course. And um, so many years later, I told Fotis, hey, by the way, your dad is what brought me into soccer. So I got the license and I immediately went into adult soccer. Refereeing. Oh, wow. uh, I never did any youth games until I moved to New Jersey and started more of the track sort of thing. So I was just doing adult games and I liked it. I was getting like 40, 50 bucks. And then I'd work in an indoor place. You know, I was in college. So I worked in indoor place where I'd start at seven and go till midnight and just do one game after the other. Yeah. And it was purely, purely, purely for the money. There's right. there's nothing here that I fell in love with referee. Blah, blah, yeah. blah. That's all BS. I was I needed the money. I paid for my own education. And so, you know, after that and then, you know, once I graduated from college, it was right when the NASL folded pretty much. And I wanted to play professionally. I mean, I was I dreamed that I don't know if I'd ever be good enough or not, but there was nowhere to go to trial at a, maybe a second division level or something where you need a couple of years to develop. And I was refereeing and I thought, you know what? I like this refereeing stuff. I'm playing semi-professional with a team here in New Jersey and we're really good, but it's, it's not going anywhere. I mean, yeah. if we win a game, sometimes the guy would give us 50 bucks, you know, yeah. that type of thing, you know, and if we win, we finished, we finished first, we get a, a bunch of new uniforms. That's what I was playing at. Right. And, but then it came a point where I had to choose one or the other. And I happened to be at one of those referee meetings and uh, that, you know, every state has where they tell you to go and someone speaks. And it just happened to be a guy had come back from one of the national camps, one of the old mm -hmm. referees and told me about it. And I thought, man, that that's interesting to me. That, so there's actually a track to go. And mm -hmm. then I thought, well, it's a way to get into the bigger games and stuff. And there was no professional league this time. So I said, I'm going to try to do this. I want to go to the national camp. So I counted every game, did games and did want, did tournaments where I could just to, to build up. At that time, you had to have like a hundred games as a referee and 50 as an AR to mm. move up to the state level. You had to sit at the state level for three years before you could even be nominated for the national camp. So it was a really long process. So I got started with it right away. And I made it to the national uh, level when I was, uh, 27, 28. So I was one of the youngest people there. And I, me, and this is an interesting story, me and Kevin Stott sat mm. next to each other in a meeting. We met each other for the first time. And we both looked at each other. And at that time, all the FIFA panel would sit in the front row. I said, we said to each other, we're going to be sitting in the front row someday. 
That's awesome. We challenged each other. And so Kevin and I are, are close friends um, from that. We did make it to the front. I I, I had a goal of uh, being a fifth. I wanted to be a fifth referee, to be honest. But what happened is I looked at the landscape. At that time, uh, Brian Hall was ahead of me. Essie Bahamas was ahead of me. Kevin Stott was there. And I thought if I moved to the referee panel, I would have to, this whole lot of people I'd have to beat out to make it to the World mm-hmm. Cup. That's what I wanted to do. And so I said, you know, the AR track is better for me. I'm good at it. The guys like working with me as AR. And yeah. so that's why I ended up choosing that way, you know, and not moving away from it. Because at the very beginning, you could kind of start as an AR and then move to the referee panel. Not anymore. Now, you're, you know, you're tracked as an AR or tracked as a referee right up pretty early. Uh, at that time, you could do both. So mm-hmm. I was still refereeing. I, I was almost refereeing everything and just AR when it was an international game. So wow. then that changed slowly over history, history and I, and then I realized I was probably the number one AR and I had a good chance of going to the World Cup. Um, uh, Brian Hall, when he went to Korea, he was the last one to go as a single. After that point is when they made teams. Okay. So that's where it, it helped out because now as an AR, I had a chance. Right. So, right. And then we ended up, ended up going to Germany. So, wow. Yeah, yeah. So it was for the money. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, now, now, but I'll tell you now, now, young referees, I'll tell you this. Now there is a professional track for you. There is a way that you can make a living off of refereeing now. And when I when I started, there was no living as a referee. You made some money and sometimes decent money, but you better have had another job. If you had a family, forget it. You had to have another job. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe the single person, you could get away with it, you know. But now there is a clear track that you can have a professional career as a referee for many years. If you get there, you know, say, talk about Kyle Atkins or something like that. He's young enough. And right. he could be there for another 15 years. Right. Um, and mm-hmm. and make good money. Uh, he does in our job and stuff like that. But you talk about some of our youngest referees, Lucas Spala, who just came in last year. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, still in his 30s, or right at that right at that age. He could go for another 15 years right. uh, as a professional referee. And so when you look at that, there is a career path there with, you know, 401, the whole thing, insurance, and, you know, you, you can have a family, you, you can, you know, obviously there's weekends away from home, but that we yeah. already deal with that. We're, we're already weekends away, no matter what you're doing, what, whatever level referee you are, right. you're, you're doing weekends away. But now I think for a young referee, um, if you set that goal, it's there. It's, I mean, obviously you have to perform, but there right. is a possible track, which I would say 10 years ago, it would be a really a pipe dream for most people. Sure. Uh, just, it was a very select few. Now uh, there's a real track. I mean, next year we got 29 MLS teams playing. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we we already have to hire more referees. We have to hire more assistant referees. And then on top of that, if you love working in soccer and refereeing, we have to hire more staff. I mean, you right. you have to you you just can't even more assessors or you know physios. Whenever you grow a company like this, refereeing, there's all these ancillary positions that right. I tell you what, they're filled with people who love refereeing and love soccer. Yeah. You know, they don't, they realize, okay, I can't be a professional myself, but I can be associated with it. I can help. I can work at it. And it's a, it's a great business if you love soccer and if you love refereeing. And so I would say we have maybe 20, 30 people that work with pro, not necessarily employees, but work there because they're ex-referees that love soccer and refereeing, you know? Mm-hmm. And so they are a great help to us. And I think yeah. now as a young referee to have that career opportunity when you're say you're in college and you're getting mm-hmm. out to graduate and you're thinking, do I go into a business degree somewhere or do I give it a shot? You know? And mm-hmm. if you're good, you're phys- a good physical shape, take care of your body and whatnot. 
uh, you have a chance, you know, and it's opened up more and more. Like we have more scouts. There's more chance you get visible, uh, seen by people. Right. I mean, when you look at our pro panel of referees, we almost have just about every state represented somewhere. Yeah. yeah. North Dakota is in there. I mean, South Dakota is in there. Um, uh, we have Wyoming. I mean, we got, when you think of it, yeah. places that you would not traditionally say, oh, this is where we get great referees from. Right. You know, so you do have an opportunity to get seen and and and, and reach that, that that level. Right. People that have kind of blazed trails a little bit and have been brought in and provided a lot of opportunities, which is great and have a lot of great experiences, which brings us to kind of the seltzer water, just so you know. That's fine. You do what you want to do, man. Um, <laughs> most people have to have to get through a to an interview with me, but um, I've already had three because I heard you were going to be mean. <laughs> Uh, oh gosh! And, and, and add the ibuprofen I took. You know, that's that's right. Yeah, that's a little cocktail. Keep asking me questions. You're gonna find out more things. <laughs> um. So so, what are the memorable, funny, exciting, terrifying? I mean, we're all ears for stuff that's along your journey that stands <laughs> out in your mind that were shaping moments, exciting moments, terrifying. I'm all ears. Uh, okay. Well, I can <laughs> tell you one kind of terrifying moment. Oh, but it, it didn't turn out to be that is taking the fitness tests to make it to the world cup. Ooh. The stress level of that, I was perfectly in shape to do it. I, I in my, my local uh, track at that time, you had to do um, 10 laps after the sprints did 10 laps, those, the interval test, you know? Yeah. And I remember I did at my local track, I did 22 laps once in my training. So mm. there was no doubt I could do it. Right, But it's just the thought that what happens if you wake up that morning, you're not feeling quite well, you get a little thing in your, in your hamstring or something. And, you know, because at that time the whole crew would go home, not just you. Yeah. So you would be, you would be the person would that kill the dream for 200 people. And I tell you, it was nerve wracking. I didn't sleep at all the night before, but at the same point, the elation of passing it is it's just, even though you knew you were going to pass it, but it just was, I, I hated it. I hated it very much. Um, I remember the same thing for me. Yeah. It's just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I shared that. Yeah. No, yeah. very. Yeah. Oh, I can't imagine. I can't yeah. imagine that. But, and then, and I'm sure the world cup being one of those unbelievable experiences as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, it it, it is. And if a referee, when you think about, you always want to do the final. And of course I'm disappointed. I didn't do that. But I made it there, you know, and I kept on telling myself, there's about 100,000 referees that would love to take my place. You oh. know, whenever I whenever I felt disappointed by not getting the game or something like that, I said, you know what, you're you're living the dream of so many referees. So um, it was it was pretty fun. It was a great experience. Um, it helped me in my career now. I, I'm, a, I'm a FIFA instructor. I'm going to mm-hmm. be going to Bolivia in about two weeks to teach VAR there. And, oh. um, you know, then basically I'm, I'm a VAR instructor around the world. Great experience to travel for me. I'm talking about travel. If you want to hear kind of a funny story, oh, yeah. um, went to Honduras, uh, to Honduras versus Mexico. And it was a World Cup qualifier in Honduras, San Pedro Sula. And we get picked up at the airport. You know, you don't go through passport. They, they find you there. They take you to the side and you get into a van and there's a truck full of police in front of you or army behind you. There's, another tr- pickup truck with officers in it. And, and then inside there's like three or four plainclothesmen inside the van with you. Wow. And so, you know, we're going through there and, and 
the guys on the motorcycles are just kicking cars to get them out of the way. You know, if a car's in the way, beep, 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 boom, kick it with their foot to, to get you through there. And we were just going to the hotel. This is when arrival. We get to the hotel and I get out first because I have to be by the door. I get out. The plane clothes person gets out after me and their gun falls out and goes clatter, 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 clatter. I'm just spinning around oh. right, right by my feet. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, oh. <laughs> so Jeez. I'll be there first about it. But but at the hotel, then you, you're on your own floor. We were on our own floor, and nobody and there's a guard at the at the at the staircase and at the elevator. Nobody can get come under or down. And we do the game. Um it's the first time Honduras ever beats Mexico. They beat them two nothing. We come back to the hotel. We walk in the restaurant, and the people in the restaurant stop and applaud us. So it's, so, it's just surreal, you know. It's like yeah. you walk into the hotel, and people are applauding you because you refereed the game in Mexico the first one. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so that was a kind of a funny one. There's been tons of them. I mean, I have somewhere I have the the, the ball for the very first goal ever scored in LA Galaxy Stadium. Wow! Even though, even though they think they have it, because <laughs> what we did before the game. They told us the first goal, grab the ball. They want to seven it to put him in the museum, you know, for LA Galaxy yeah. first goal, you know. And I think it's actually inside their little their store that for, they have a look at a frame thing. So we thought, let's get our names on the ball. So we ended up putting our names on one of the panels of the ball, like it was Faraday. Uh, I can't remember who it was myself, yeah. but, but we didn't get done in time. There were like thirteen balls, and we only got ten there. So we told the fourth official, if they happen to score with one of the balls that doesn't have our name, just swap it out. And they'll never know. So what they happened to do is they actually did score one of the balls that didn't have the name. They swapped it out, and I took the arrow home. <laughs> I have it here somewhere. That's amazing. So they think they have the first ball from it. I mean, silly stuff like that. But yeah. the funny thing is, that's what I remember. But I don't remember the game at all. You know, well, yeah. as anybody's referee career, and I will tell this for any young person, you're not going to really remember the game. You're only going to remember one or two games in your lifetime but you're going to remember the people you refereed and what you did before and after the game. And that's what makes refereeing such a, a love, uh, something of love to do because yeah. it's not really the games. I mean, yeah, I remember a few games or some big calls you make, you know, but I did, you know, some seven, 800 games, probably, you know, professional yeah. games. I did 320 MLS games. Mm. I can remember maybe two or three of them that right. were like crucial, big decision, whatever happened but i can remember so many stories of going out to dinner with the guys afterwards or what happened before etc you know and that's really what makes referee what it is so shoot we could shut the interview down right there we won't <laughs> that is a great we'll have let to, me take another drink then yeah yeah get your seltzer water in your system um so let, let's transition to to your role now uh the role that you found yourself in with pro and then now traveling internationally with with fifa um, so pros manager of video review, uh, what does that look like? I'm out of my own curiosity. What does a week by week look like in that role? Yeah, well, right now it's sweet because we're mid-season. Yeah. So really what my day is right now is getting prepared for our, na our, our national camps coming up. We have NWSL VIR coming up. Um, we're having yeah. some training down in Florida the first week of January. So that's what we're all preparing for, but it's really kind of slow right now. I was enjoyed the World Cup, et cetera. But now I'll tell you about my a normal week. You know, So you have your games on Saturday, Sunday. And of course, um, right now I'll usually travel down to Atlanta to our centralized location and right. be there and supervise, make sure anything happens. Most of the games go smooth, um, but if there's some issue, I'm right there. I can talk to the press. We can, you know, let, for example, Howard or Mark know right away what happened. So if we, we'll, I mean, we'll call the producer directly 
and say, hey, what you're explaining on, on air is wrong. This is what actually happened. So mm. that helps build the story correctly so we don't have this, this narrative that's completely wrong um, that they're talking about when this was actually what happened. So that's why we have supervisors there. I'm not, I mean, it's between me, Alan Kelly, Mark Iger. We take turns kind of going down there, but we're there. And we have 14 little pods where we the games go out of. Um, so that's like what it does. But then the big one is Monday. Monday's where we kind of go through everything that happened. And, you know, obviously the reviews that happened, we know about. But then we look at plays that maybe should have been reviewed. Right. And so really we kind of know which ones they are because usually there's kind of a key, it's a key incident in the game. Um, and then we'll make like an initial decision, like, no, this is a good check complete. It wasn't a clear foul, whatever. Um, we'll look at the reviews, each one of us, each one of us separately. Um, you know, Howard, well, now he's gone, but Mark and Al will kind of look at it on our own, kind of formulate our own opinion on them. And I will then, of course, I log it all and we have a database, et cetera, that gets filled in. And we'll look at it. We'll say, like, look at this. It was a good review um, the, uh, or sometimes we say good review, but the referee should have changed their decision. Mm. Or, some, you know, we don't like those. The worst ones we hate are the ones where it's not a good review and the referee does change the decision. So in other words, we took right. what wasn't a wrong decision on the field and made it wrong. You know, right. so um, those we hate. They happen every now and then. They're a nightmare. Um, but they're very, very rare. I think, I think last year we had one of those every 120 games. Yeah. So right. it's, it happens. Um, and sometimes, you know what, most people don't even know. Sometimes we're more self-critical. Um, there's things that happen that have no effect on the game, but they should have been reviewed. Mm. And we don't want them to happen in a more critical moment. And there's some that are super critical. Like it's one-to-one -one and there's a penalty situation and it doesn't get reviewed and it should have been. That's a problem. Then we have to deal with the coaches and whatnot and the teams. Um, we're usually very open with the teams. So if we have to admit that we're wrong, we're wrong. Um, and then basically we have uh, on Wednesdays, we have our KMI meeting where we meet and we go through all the KMIs and we, we have to vote on them. I'm one of three votes to see if they're right or wrong. Jory, you're right. And then usually Thursday or Friday, I start writing the script for Inside Video Review. Um, we started that kind of um, strangely because when we were the very first ones to start VAR with Australia and Italy. Mm -hmm. So we were the very first. And there were so many questions from the press, from everybody, and they wanted to find a way to, you know, kind of explain things to people because it was so new. So we actually did a pilot where I went to New York in the studio and they interviewed me about the week. But I thought to myself, there's no way I'm going into New York. We travel too much. We're going to miss weeks and people are going to think we're hiding stuff. So I on my own in this very room here, I put up, I have a green screen and I worked at Telemundo in post-production. So I made the first version on my own without telling Howard or anybody in MLS. And I said, and I said it to him, I said, what do you think of this? And they loved it. And that's what started and basically wow. we wanted to explain and it was it was more so not always right or wrong decision but this is what happened so you understand what happened this is what the vr was thinking and we put the audio and the audio is key people want the audio we tried yeah. and i'll get my hand slapped again here we tried to put the audio out live we want to and i'm honest mm -hmm. i want to put the audio live when the referee is at the monitor we want that audio to be live on air but we got shut down. We're still trying. We wanted to be first. We, If some of you were paying attention and MLS is back in Orlando during COVID, we actually did it. It got great reviews in the press everywhere. Everybody loved it. Said, look, at you. The MLS is doing it right. We got shut down by the powers that be in Europe. They said, you can't do that without permission. Main reason, of course, because we can't do it everywhere else. 
you know, so that was kind of the main issues. We're still trying. We have a proposal in front of them. It has to be approved. We're asking for an experimental proposal where we can experiment with this. Um, don't know if it's going to happen or not, but we're, we're making the effort because for me, I, our referees and VRs are, to me, are so good that you should be allowed to hear them. And sometimes you're going to hear the doubt in their voices. There's no doubt that every now and then a VR goes, ooh, is that a handball? And, they're, and they're, you know, just like you, when you see a player, think, ooh, is that a handball? Is that enough? Right. Um, and we work with them to try to make them more decisive. Um, our VRs are pretty good with that. We train them, you know, and during the week, then I we have a, a private web page where we put every single decision that the VR does. And our referees vote on it. Our ARs vote on it. Our VRs vote on it. Uh, and they vote with their names. Mm-hmm. So they put, I think it's a good review, good outcome. So there's two things for every review. Is the, re- is the review correct in recommending it? Like, is it a clear error? Yes or no? And then is the final outcome correct or not? So when the referee goes to the monitor, did he actually change the decision to the correct one? So mm-hmm. they vote on every one of them. So last year we had 161 reviews. I know the, I know the opinion of every one of our referees on every one of those. And so that helps us track if, for example, us as managers are thinking, oh, that's a good one. And all the referees are saying, no, that's terrible. We don't want that. Then we know that we need to, we need to adjust. Or we did say, hey, referees, we are, we want you over here. And so they all do that. We, decided, uh, we have a web, uh, website that we use. All the referees go in there and, and they vote every week. And then I put in afterwards our final decision. So they all know exactly what Pro thinks about the decision. Okay. And our opinion, and then also things that we should, you need to learn from each each event. Like if the VR did something wrong, or man, I should say wrong, maybe he could have shut down something better. Like he did things out of order, or how we how we talk to the replay operator to make it more efficient. You know, we'll criticize our guys if they go too long. I mean, there is no reason that it should take more than a minute for the VR to make a decision if he's seen the video. There's just no reason because if you're seeing the video, you got to make a decision. If that's what you got, that's what you got. Make a decision. And new VARs will want to say, okay, is there another angle? Is there one more? Let me see it one more time. We've had some people look at the same replay 18 times in a row in a loop yeah. and just can't make a decision. And so they get they actually kind of lose their concentration because they're they're almost like hypnotized by the re- replay. Right. So we, we teach them how to break that and and, and how to, to get out of that. So um, our worst review last year lasted five minutes. Embarrassing. Mm. Just and mainly was because uh, the, the the VAR was indecisive at first. And then when the referee went to the monitor, he was indecisive because it just wasn't a good review. Because yeah. like many people say, if it's taking you over two minutes, how can it be clear and obvious? Not right. You know? And right. and there is some, there's truth to that, really. If if you don't, sometimes we just don't have the angle. There have been times where we think it's a handball, a penalty kick, but we have zero angles to prove it. And it's really hard for the VARs to say, you know what? I think it's wrong, but I got nothing that says I don't have any video evidence. We're, it's not like the World Cup. We have usually 14 to 15 cameras per game. They have 36 on that per game. So, you know, there's times where just the angle is wrong. We just can't get it. Right. Um, right. Well, it, it makes me laugh when we do these college games and these coaches. Yeah. <laughs> use it's like it looks like it's being filmed on a potato at midfield. I don't understand why you think we're going to get a clear angle for this. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's our issue with offside. Right. People ask us why we don't use offside lines. Um, and one of the issues is, at first it was costly. First it was costly, but that's not the issue anymore. It's mostly we don't have enough cameras. We don't have goal line cameras in all the stadiums. 
And you really need goal line cameras for to put the lines because if the ball is past the camera and they're shooting it this direction, you can't get the you don't know where the front of people's bodies are to put the line. Yeah. So you have to be you have to have the camera in front of the players of the defensive line and the attackers to know to see. Do you put it on the knee? Do you put it on the foot? Do you put it on the head? Because you're if you're looking this way, you can do it. But if you're looking the opposite way, it's covered and it's back, so you can't put a fair line. Even though the lines that we do have available that we could put are accurate, completely accurate, but we just can't put them there because there's no way to know exactly where they've got to go. You're right. Once we put them there, they're accurate. So that's why we decided, look, at, let's just go with no lines. We will go, our clear and obvious will be that when you look at it, mm-hmm. does it stay to you offside or not? And um, overall, the teams accept it. They're pretty good with it. We probably end up with a lot more goals um, being allowed than disallowed because right. when it's close, our ARs are very good at keeping the flag down. So if they keep the flag down and it's close, the VR is going to look at it and say, well, it might be offside, but I can't go with might. Check complete. Goals, goals, goals confirmed. So that helps us in many ways give more goals than take away. Right. I fear that if we do get lines, which we're – in talks about doing because uh, with Apple now coming in, uh, the broadcast camera will, will be more cameras, etc. So it may happen. Um, but when that happens, I got a feeling that our first year we're probably going to take away more goals. Right now, our goal for product, our goal um, VR stuff is excellent. Um, in MLS, 99.36 of all goals are valid, they're correctly scored. And we only get involved in 2.7% of all goals. So not only of all the goals that are scored, we're only involved in 2.7 of them in, in either, either giving the goal or taking away the goal. You know what I mean? So that we we do a review on, put it that way. So goals in MLS, go ahead and celebrate, we tell the players. Go ahead and celebrate. It's very unlikely we're going to take it away. You know, so it, right. to us, we like how that works. Um, there's a lot of pressure from the teams, though, because they want – Everyone's that definitive line, like like even the World Cup. The guy's butt kept the guy on on, on side. I love that right. image. The guy's butt keeping him on. Yeah, <laughs> like, you don't really want to do that, you know. Yeah. So that's the point. I mean, do I mean this is a good question for fans? Do fans really want lines where, for example, the game Croatia versus um, uh, I can't remember which one, but it was offside where penalty was taken away for offside. The offside was like six six to seven mill- millimeters. That's yeah. how much outside it was. So you're talking, you know, not even your fingernails length. So is that what football wants? Right. To me, no. I mean, that's not what I want personally. But if they tell me to put lines, I got to put lines. Right. But it's interesting because I'm watching this and I'm going, this is not right. You see that those and it's like the, you know, the one that I saw, right. like the bottom of the armpit situation. Yeah. Right. And, and and really, where is the bottom of your armpit? Really? Come on. Right. There's yeah. A, there's enough. There's six millimeters this pair, six millimeters the other way, you know? It's, right. And so it's like, we're looking at this and, and I'm looking at this and I'm thinking to myself, this is what they wanted. This is what you yeah. get, right? Like, this yeah. is what you asked for. And to me, it's like, I'm a baseball fan too. Like Major yeah. League Baseball wants to put in automated strike zones. So yeah. when the guy misses by 20 inches, three feet or whatever, and he's set up down yeah. low and he misses high and away and the umpire punches him out. Yeah. That's what you asked for it. So that's what yeah. you get, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But interesting. There, yeah, so it, it's, I mean- the what they use in a guitar is obviously very good. I mean, it's, it's yeah. accurate to me. It's completely accurate. Uh, no, you can't question it. Um, but it's way too expensive for really other leagues to use right now. 
Yeah. And so it's you're not gonna see it in other leagues for a while. They're gonna I mean maybe maybe the very top leagues can afford it and bring yeah. it in because you need all these computer stuff and all these cameras inside the stadium, etc. So it's it's not like oh yeah, let's just buy the software, plug it into our computers, and now we got it. Right. You know, you have to have cameras and all this stuff going on there. Um, so okay. that's it, it's it's here to stay. Um, who knows if you know what what happens if FIFA maybe adjusts the offside law? Um, because the whole part about gaining an advantage that's subjective, right? You know, does being offside by six millimeters is that really gaining an advantage? I mean. Who knows? You know, maybe the future of offside would be changed in that way. So. Yeah, interesting. Well, there's brief follow-ups I wanted to to touch on here. The NWSL project of bringing VAR there. What's that look like? Where are you at in that process? Um, we're on the final stage. Um, we did um, all VAR training starts with classroom. So we do um, three, two, three-hour classes of protocol, understanding what it does and what it can't do, etc. Um, we did we did that all back in um, early September mm-hmm. and October, and then we go through a bunch of simulator sessions. We did that in October too. We brought um, our trainees into Atlanta to our centralized location, and we load up plays from all over the world. And that's mostly not to decide whether yes or no review, but it's it's to learn how to talk and how to. Yeah, you know, manipulate the video, go back forward and look at, and understand how you pick angles to look at things. Believe it or not, one of the best angles that we always want for penalty kicks is the behind the goal camera. It's our it almost always works because it's exactly opposite of what the referee is seeing. Right. The referee is always behind the play in a penalty kick, and having the other goal camera from behind usually gives us the answer for penalty kicks because the referee usually sees this this side correctly, right? But he can't see this side, or she can't see this side. And so that camera is good. So we teach our VRs. You have an incident in the penalty kick, ask for that behind-the-goal camera as your first one to look at. Because it's probably going to give you the answer of yes, it's a penalty kick or no. And so they've done that. So we have a um, a group. We started a group of about 40 candidates, and we're, we're, at, we're at like 25 or 26. Now the next step, they've, done, they've all done um, two similar sessions, and a few of them did some live games. What we did is um, the MLS playoffs, we brought that in uh, into the central location in two signals. We did one that was live, which our VRs were doing live and doing the game. But we had a separate one where people were there practicing on the game live. Interesting. So, yeah. so they were working in another you know, another thing, just going through it. You know, They couldn't talk to the referee or anything like that. They were just going through the game. But there's no contact with the field. So everybody actually has to do that. So we do that for everybody that they have some practice games. Um, we did that with a couple other games in MLS where they go through the game, no contact to the field. It's just a matter of learning, learning how to go through the process of the game. Sure. And now coming up, in, we're going to IMG the first weekend in, in January um, where we do our live on-field training. And we bring the referees in now because the referees need to know what to do, you know, how to go to the monitor, what's going to happen there. You know what to say, what they're going to lead for, when do we have to wait for the, the VAR, etc. So we have a bunch of teams come in, and most of their players, and they create situations for us: yeah. shirt pulling, offsides, penalty kicks. Um, we we try to tell them not to. We like red cards, but it's really hard to tell American players to go ahead and nail somebody, and give us a serious foul play. But <laughs> when we did it, when we did this in Costa Rica, we did it right after the end of kind of COVID was open. We did it for Concacaf. And they brought in all these teams to play games. They look at 
this is, these are fake games, no money or anything like that. It's just for the VAR. And we had some real red cards in these games. It was fabulous VAR training. Some of these players were like, I don't care. I haven't played for a year. Whack. <laughs> and, you know, and we had some, we had real reviews for, for serious foul play in fake games that were only being done for VAR. So oh, that's great. We, we can't get, we can't get the American kids to do that, but we tell them grab a shirt, create a dog. So situation like that, but that's going to happen in January. So we do some more simulator there. And at the same time we do, um, they actually work live um, in the talking to the referee. So this is the first one where they actually talk to the referee and go for it. And so once we get past that, when we go into the preseason, every one of the VR has to do at least we we require for ourselves at least two games where they are going to be the VAR for the preseason. So NWSL is organizing um, preseason games in their stadiums so that VR can be involved there. We can test. We also have to test the signal, make sure it's coming in and out. You know, some yeah. of the stuff goes, the technology goes way over my head of how they get the game from one place to the other with a millisecond, you know, delay. So that they all have to do. So we have that plan for, you know, February, once the teams start getting into preseason, um, we right. will be doing VAR in those preseason games um, with contact with the referee, but it's all just practice. And first game of the season, uh, we'll have VARs on it. So we're looking forward. It'll be the first league mm-hmm. in the world to have it. Wow. Um, yeah. I don't know how much it will get used because it all depends on the referees. And we right. prefer and we emphasize that we don't want to use VAR. In other words, we say that because we don't want the referees depending on VAR. Right, right. Like, you know, right now our average is one view every three games. We don't ever want to go more than that. Um, last year, 2021, we actually had one in every four games, which is one of our, our best year for least reviews. And that's because the referees aren't making mistakes. Because even when we add in the ones we missed, et cetera, it's still coming up that way. And we know some other leagues in the world are having one review a game sometimes two or three game of the games, which kills the authority of the referee. If the referee is going to have two or three reviews a game, right. why bother with them? Just yeah, put the VAR in there. Right. You know? So we really emphasize that, you know, we tell our referees, you're you're not, I mean, obviously we want you to correct the decision. Sleep well at night. But we don't think, oh, this is fantastic. You use re, um, VAR to change your decision. You should have gotten it right in the first place. And this is what you should do next time to make sure you get it right. Yeah, right. And that's our instruction all the time is, you know, this is what you have to do to get it right next time. You need to run quicker, get wider, whatever it might be, um, because you should have gotten this. That's kind of our thing. VR helped you. It was the parachute you wanted. And we're happy about that because we we can, we sleep good at night, too. We don't have a coach going, hey, what's going on? You know, we say, hey, direct decision in the end. So our hands are clean. But we still don't want to be doing it if you don't have to. Yeah. Well, it's exciting for the NWSL to see that. And the technology piece is is truly amazing. And you're right. I mean, it took, I know it's, you, we weren't recording when we started this, but it took Greg about 25 minutes to unmute his microphone. So the yeah. technology piece is, we only see, have I, a few a week. Dig, I had to get my one mean dig in yeah. uh, for our episode. No, anyway, so t- two quick things. The centralized location, has that gone as you had hoped? Uh, not at the beginning, it did. Um, okay. At the beginning, we we had some struggles. We actually um, <laughs> three days before the we um, I think it was a weekend in uh, March, a full weekend of MLS games. We had to take all our VARs except one that were going to go to Atlanta to our center location and reroute them to all the stadiums. Wow, That's three days because there was an AT and T signal issue. Um, internet issue 
coming in that wasn't coming in fast enough. So in other words, it could only run one game from there. And mm-hmm. we found this out basically on a Thursday. And so all the plane tickets, everything got changed. So there was issues with that at the beginning. Um, we luckily we did not miss any games. Every single game had VAR. So that's yeah. you know positive. We had we struggled with the audio connection. The video usually was coming in good. The audio was an issue um, until they, they had, you know, it's again over my head. Some of the technology part of it, they had to rework some things of how they were bringing the audio in. Um, so we um, actually had to use a backup system several times. Interesting. Um, and so that got cleaned up um, by May. Uh, there was just it was a little bit that we we rushed it in getting there. The approval for Atlanta wasn't given till late, and so we were behind on construction, etc on getting there. So that was a, you know, a little bit of an issue, but so at the beginning, it was a struggle. Um, but I tell you what, one of the good things about it, it really helped with scheduling once we got it going because a guy could come in Friday, do a game Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Right. So mm-hmm. we, we were able to use our best VARs for more games. Um, and the guys liked it too. They can come in and work, you know, three games on a weekend. And for them, it's more money. And, but it's also uh, less travel then because, they're not going to three different locations and whatnot. And, you know, Atlanta is a big airport, so you can get out on time, you know, get out pretty easily for almost anywhere in the country. So people really liked it. We had problems with a hotel at first too. Um, <laughs> they never hired enough people after COVID. So we had to move to a whole different hotel. So it's, it's wow. all these things that go behind the scenes that right. luckily most of you don't notice because, um, you know, there's, it, it, it's getting cleaned up. But we had two, two of the monitors die this year for the first time. And one was really embarrassing because it was a terrible PK given by the referee. It was clear simulation. Um, he went to the monitor. The monitor was dead. And so he decided to stay with the decision. And so we have a policy now that that if the monitor is dead, you go with what the VR tells you. Because the VR is not going to be telling you to go to the monitor for nothing. You right, know? right. So the, the, there is times when the VR recommends incorrectly, like he too low or too high uh, of, of intervention. But that's a rarity. So we have a kind of policy in place. If technology fails, um, we make it a fact. We call what we call a factual review. In other words, you go a VAR only review, sort of like like the rest of the world does with offside, where right. they just say, you know, hey, beep, offside. So that that's a learning point that we had. Um, it it luckily it didn't affect the game too much. It was already two nothing, made it three nothing. But you know. Right. Could, could change things completely. So a little embarrassing. And, and then, you know, things like that, we, I have to do it on, on inside video review. I comment on it. It's explained to people, this is what happened. And, you know, you get people that complain about it, but technology is technology. It, it breaks down. You know, you, you think, you know, I show up in Atlanta and, you know, at seven o'clock, everything's working perfectly. Kickoffs are 738. And all of a sudden, boom, we're not getting a signal from Salt Lake. What's going on? You know, what happened to it? Well, we can't hear the referees anymore. It's like, boom. So that happens um, every now and then, but uh, Hawkeye, our, our supply, our supplier, does a pretty good job of fixing it. And and really, by the end of of the season, we were smoothly going out of Atlanta um, with no issues. This is something that I think you guys have already experimented with. Uh, professional football has gone down this road. NFL, I should say. Major League Baseball brought this in, and that is announcing replay decisions on the PA by the by the official is that something that we should see we will see in the near future in the mls well we did test it um we tested it at several um venues of referee camps 
we did in Minnesota where we, you know, we created an effect and the referee would go out and say, decision on the field is uh, no goal offside by number 15. You know, that type of thing. Um, we tested it. Um, we didn't get approval from FIFA to do it. So um, it, got, it got kind of put on the back burner because it was, then it was another piece of technology to put on the referee. And, right. you know, they already got the flags on their arm. They got the vocero on it. And here, and now here we're going to throw a microphone on them too. You know, so it was, the technology wasn't quite um, there to kind of work in the same microphone as the vocero and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So it kind of got dropped. Um, and also it kind of got dropped because people understood VAR better. You know, sure. at first it was more of a demand for it because people didn't quite know, like, you know, why is he taking away the goal? You know, and people don't know the reason that we go to the monitor every time is because of because of broadcast screwing up in New England. We had a goal scored in New England. Robert Sabiga was the referee. It was a long ball. A guy came back and flicked it to another guy who goes in and scores a good goal. VRC, the guy who came who flicked it, had come from an offside position back to flick the ball. Mm. Clearly offside. AR had missed it. The VR did recommend a review for no goal offside. The review goes beep like this. They put the ball down and played. The fans were still celebrating. The broadcast was showing the replays of the goal, and it was 1-0 for about 10 minutes. But it was 0-0. <laughs> and broadcasts got mad at us. Says, well, we didn't know. We didn't know. And what the referee did all the things. So after that, we said, let's just go to the monitor for the benefit of the fans and the broadcast. So when we go with her for offside, it's really almost ceremonial. It's just to slow the process down because we were actually going too fast. We were doing it too quickly that broadcast and the fans weren't realizing it. So the reason that we go on those fast reviews is to actually show the fans, look at the referee, which American fans are used to, right? We're used to seeing a referee go to a monitor and make a decision and come back, right? So for our culture of sport, we expect the referee to go and make a decision at a monitor. And right. so it's very accepted for us to see the referee go there. It takes 45 seconds longer to do it. We know that. To go to the monitor, look at it, come back with a decision. So that's why we do it. Um, maybe not with automated stuff or lines at some point, we'll go away from that. But that's that's probably the number one reason why we go to the monitor for every single review, sure. regardless of what it is. Even encroached by the goalkeeper on a penalty kick, which is just completely factual because all you're going to look at is a screen – it shows you got a foot across the line, you know, so it's, yeah, we do that, but it's for the broadcast and for the fans in the stadium. Yeah. So to kind of close out the VAR conversation and, and then we'll get to our uh, fan questions here. Where with where we're at with VAR and the MLS, are you, do you think we're on the right track? Are you happy with where things are going? Your what's your overall analysis of this? Well, we are pretty happy. we, we do not get the complaints for VAR that you get around the world. Right. Um, I think one of the reasons are is we're pretty transparent with it. Like inside video review, we also, if you go to prorefereescom you will see a thing called definitive angle where we put our opinion on every single review. Because sometimes I don't cover everything inside video review because it might be boring or just there's nothing interesting, interesting about it. You know, so and if we have five reviews, it'd be a 15-minute segment. I mean, geez, I got a life. I'm not going to do 15 minutes. You know, so... <laughs> So we, but we always put them there, and I think that helps. And we'll tell, we'll, we'll admit sometimes, you know, the VAR didn't, didn't get it right, you know. But then we also say it would have been wrong before VAR too. It just happened to be stayed, it stayed wrong because VAR didn't fix it. 
you know, so overall, I think we have really positive marks. We're happy with it. We like that we keep a lot high line of intervention. There are things that people will will see. Say, oh, that's a penalty kick. You know, it's they're, they're looking, but it yeah, if the referee gave it, it might be a penalty kick. But it's 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 really not clearly wrong. Like especially upper body fouls. Upper body fouls are so subjective because soccer is a contact sport, especially with the upper body. And so VARs are very, very rarely ever going to touch anything with the upper body because, you know, you guys got his arm here, they got their arm there, and they're both kind of holding each other. Stay out of it. We we don't get involved with that because it's just too subjective. Who is holding who more than the other guy? You know, like maybe one guy got a little bit more than the other, but people are going to look at it. Come on. You know, and so what we want to do is we want, we want people to say, look it, wow, that's a penalty kick. You got to give it, you know, yeah. or that's a red card. Come on. And talk about that. Red cards were – since we started in 2017, the red card checks and review, I got straight downhill. Mm-hmm. Me, I'm convinced player behavior change. Yeah. Because they know they can't get away with it. At the World Cup, no reviews for red cards, right? Well, the, the dog so, but I'm talking about serious mm-hmm. foul play, but you know, like there's no and by the conduct, none, you know, and that's because of VAR, because they can't get away with it anymore. Yeah. And this last year, we had our best success rate with red cards. We only missed two or th- I think three red cards that we think that should have been happened. They weren't given, um, but they were dog so. They weren't even, you know, that's kind of subjective then, you know, is the defender back far enough, et cetera. But red cards, serious foul play, we got them, vital content, we got them, you know, and so players stopped doing them. So when yeah. you look at our data for checks in the game for red card incidents, in 2017, it's way up here. 2018 dropped a little bit. 2019 dropped. 2020 dropped. 2022 it's down, it's way down. So we made very, very few red card incidents to check anymore. Yeah, and that's player behavior because of VR. So we have a high line of intervention, and we we think it's worked for us. Um, and really, right now, it's VR is going to be all about penalty kicks. I think in the future, penalty kicks, of course, offside for goals, but right. VAR in the future is all about whether penalty kicks or not penalty kicks. And so that's why handball, no handball, trip or no trip, it's it very subjective decisions. And so that's where you got to be really careful about going down the line of like any contact is going to be a penalty kick. You know, the VR is going to review. Because then, really, guys are just going to get knocked over and, and, and go down, you know, and think, oh, I'll give you a penalty kick. You know, so I think keeping a high line has really helped us. And, yeah, sometimes people go, oh, come on, that's a penalty kick. We're going, really, is it a penalty kick? And probably, you know, it could be. But we don't want to be in the could-be business. We want to be in the business of, yeah, you know what, that's a clear penalty. Have to, you have to give it. Yeah. You know, it's unfair. It's unjust. So that's where we want to be, and that's where we're going to be. Um, the team's accepted. I think one of the things you got to really establish is you have to establish a line for all the games so that they understand that in their games, this is where the line's going to be. Because right. you don't want to have one game where it's up here and, not, and somewhere else. So we have a work with our VARs to try to stay on the same line with everybody else. And that's why we put all the reviews for them to vote on, because we want them all agreeing that, yeah, this is a good one. This is not a good one. This was okay. You know, so we know where they are. And sometimes, every now and then we've had to adjust them and say, look, it, if you see this happen in your next game, we want it reviewed because mm-hmm. we think this is a penalty kick or a red card or whatever it is. So yeah. I think we're, we're happy. We're, I think we have good reputation around the world for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that uh, they look at us and say, you know, they're doing it right. Uh, we don't get a lot of complaints. I mean, uh, we do get complaints. I mean, some you'll never hear about because there's their emails from stuff like that, that type of thing behind the scenes. But uh, overall, I think they're pretty happy with it. The one thing I would want to improve for next year, um, our our length of our reviews was a little bit too long for my liking. 
I want to break uh, the two minute barrier where we our average reviews are less than two minutes. Um, if we took away um, going to the monitor for everyone, we'd probably be there. But I want to be able to do it under two minutes and still go to the monitor every time. So that's kind of our goal for this coming year. Good, cool. Well, let's go to a couple uh, these fan questions. So uh, I was supposing that these are your fans, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is hard to narrow it down because there's thousands. Of yeah, questions. sure. Um, what's your favorite stadium that you've worked in? Um, are we talking? Uh, well, I, t- I tell you what, the, the funnest one, the, the most intense one is the Prisa Stadium in Costa Rica. If you mm-hmm. ever get a chance to be in Costa Rica, it's in San Jose, and see Saprisa play in their stadium, it's a fabulous stadium. It's freaky as hell. The referee locker room is underneath the behind the goal section, and it's built where it goes up and down. So there's no doors on the um, locker room for the referee, just curtains, because it actually goes up or down five or six inches. And the fans are up there jumping, and you look up, and the ceiling is going up and down like this above you. And by the way, the visiting locker room is on underneath there too. But it's okay. uh, it's the intensity of the crowd, and the crowd's right there. I mean, that's what I love about it. I don't like the stadiums where they have the track. The yeah. fans are too far away. You know, it's it's just the intensity is right there. And Saprissa Stadium is just if, – if you ever get a chance to go to Costa Rica um, to vacation, see if you can get a game in at Saprissa. Um it's called the Purple Dragon. It's just a fun place. In the U.S., I would say um, Austin's a great atmosphere. Portland's a great atmosphere. L.A. Galaxy, I mean, sorry, L.A. LAFC, great atmosphere. There's so many great atmospheres in, in now in MLS. When I first started with MLS, there was no atmosphere anywhere. Yeah. Anybody used to go to Kansas City games that when they were in Arrowhead. Yeah, I remember being in at the Wizards in Arrowhead. I probably met you there because there probably been about ten other people with you there. So <laughs> probably waved to you, you know. But we used to we used to we used to send referees to Arrowhead for their very first game, and the coach uh, at the time caught on and complained said, "Hey, just because we have no fans here, you can't be sending us all the new referees." <laughs> because we said, "Let's where's the least pressure? Kansas City." But now go to Kansas City, crazy. It's it's completely different. A yeah. wonderful place to go to. Um, Toronto used to, was was great. I mean, I was there for the very first game in Toronto, where if you, if you know some MLS history, they gave them all cushions to sit on. Mm-hmm. Is there you know opening? They were rubber things like this. They all came on the field. <laughs> I'm sure like great frisbee. And it's actually, if you ever get a chance to look at a video for it, it's um, basically looks like a, a snowstorm of frisbees coming on there. I actually have one in my basement. I kept one for a memento. That's amazing. But yeah, no, no MLS now. I mean, tell you what, if you have friends that come from overseas, there's so many good stadiums now for a great atmosphere. Um, and you know, that's that's what's great about MLS now. It's it, to me, it sends chills um, seeing some of these stadiums when, if you were in MLS in '96, '97, '98, when they were some places were struggling and you know, you could count how many fans were there. Atmosphere was poor yeah. um, to see it have grown to what it is today. It's to me, it's, it's absolutely, I mean, it sends chills. I mean, I was at the final LFC, you know, to see that, you know, and not just the game itself, but to see the growth and, and that the fans are having such a good time that it's, it's wonderful to see. Yeah. That's amazing. You've already answered this a little bit, but the other one, another question that came in was: Will uh, MLS Pro slash Pro consider the use of semi-automated offside technology? Yeah, we're considering it. I mean, I think it would it would, it would happen 
if we get goal line cameras. So we have to see what Apple broadcasts, because remember now Apple's taking over. So they'll be doing all the broadcasting. Um, so we haven't really seen yet their camera plans, et cetera. Um, it is a possibility. Um, we, obviously we have, it's just a matter of, of having the right cameras and then we can implement it. So it's a good chance it would happen. Um, I don't think it'll happen for 2023. Yeah. I think it'd be more for 2024. Sure. That's where you I mean, it's not, I would say almost impossible it happens in 2023 just because what it would take to, to get the software and get everything lined up is probably not going to happen, but it will happen. I, I say 2024 is probably going to happen. Sure. Uh, and, and we'll conclude with this last question. This comes from a Jay Freeman here out of Kansas City. Uh, <laughs> Are we fake? <laughs> I think I know who that is. <laughs> I think you might. Uh, so he wants to know what's your favorite type of escape room and or your favorite city to attempt an escape room. Oh, we failed too many of them. Um, uh, we uh, for some reason talking about you know doing things you know that you don't forget, you forget the games. Well, a lot of the referees we like to do escape rooms. So oh. it, we're like at a referee camp and we have like Friday night off or Saturday night off. Some guy will figure hey, there's an escape room, you know, down here. Let's go down there and we'll split up rooms. Um, the only thing I said, there's a few people I don't want to ever be in an escape room with anymore. <laughs> Jay Freeman is not one of them, but there's one um MD. I'll just give I'll give some initials. MD, I don't want to be in him because it just it makes it you get too stressed out by him. <laughs> but the guys are good. It's a it's a good time to get locked into a room and try to figure out how to get out. Um, so, uh, we, we've done that a couple of times in some places. I always like to go, you know, and have, and have fun. And, and you know what, even though I'm technically a manager of the referees and what like that, um, there's a personal connection. I think, I mean, we go, when you're a referee, you go through some struggles and some bad times. There are games where things don't go well. And even if you make the right decision, it just may not be accepted. So you're walking out the field with people yelling at you and you're not really feeling that good about yourself. I tell you what, if you don't have a support system of friends and family, um, you're not going to make it. I just, uh, I'll say, my wife has been fabulous, you know, coming over for Ronnie games. I said, I, I'm pretty sure I missed missed this or that. And, you know, well, you're still welcome here. <laughs> you, know? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's, you know, and she's a great assessor <laughs> in her own right. I never refereed a game, right? Never watched soccer until she married me. <laughs> so <laughs> she, she goes, what is this? Sorry. Now she was sitting there screaming her head up with Argentina winning. But, um, you know, that type of stuff, if you don't have that, you're really not going to make it. And that might be a mentor. It might be a, a friend um, that understands. And some don't even have to know anything about soccer. They just have to know that, hey, you had a bad day and you, you got abused and you got to, you know, get back up and go again. You know, yeah. so it's 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 part of referee that we have some rough struggles. But when you go through the battle with people, you tend up really loving them and caring about what they do. Greg, this has been a ton of fun. I knew it would be. Um, I will give you the chance to kind of have the last word, although that was really, really good. But I'll give you the chance to have the last word. Uh, if there's anything that you feel like, I won't be able to say this to the check. If I don't say this to the Check Complete podcast, I won't be able to sleep tonight. What do you think? If there's anything uh, that... Well, I, I did the one thing. I, I thank my wife. Yeah, she, you did that right. She, you got to always make sure you do that. Yeah. Um, I know that before you kind of mentioned what I would tell a younger me yeah. about refereeing um one i i would say is that you know i thought i was pretty good when i was young <laughs> i was pretty cocky you know i thought that you know i thought all the referees screwed up i was a terrible player in regard to that 
Mm. Uh, I would yell at referees. And finally, one player says, you know, you stop yelling so much. Why don't you go be a referee kind of thing? You know, and I realized, you know, I'm sitting there complaining all the time. Why don't I go out there and do it? And I, I thought I was better. I was. And it took a couple older referees and older assessors to, to kind of tell me some things that I didn't want to hear. You know, and I kind of, ah, you know what you're talking about. Ah, you're no referee. You haven't been around. And I actually have the assessment that says, um, if you want a career in professional refereeing, you have to do this. And I tell you what, if you can find an assessor that'll be honest with you, mm. you got to find them because yeah. there's too many assessors. We go, yay, you did well, blah, blah, blah. But they're they're afraid to tell you what it was. And this was um Baldwin. He passed away many years ago, but he was the first one that failed me. Mm. And it was a time when you had to get so many passing assessments to get, you know, to the next level. And I had to go out and get two more assessments because of him. So I was really pissed off at it, but I kept that assessment I have down in my basement there that he basically said, you know, the line was, and I still remember it, if you want a career in professional refereeing, you must do this. And one of the things was like, move this way, um, you got to appear this way, you know, you can't look like this, you know, and most of it was not decision making. It was almost all with what you looked like and how you acted in the game. Yeah. So decision-making, you can learn at clinics and whatnot, what a handball is, what it, what it isn't, and what a foul is, what it isn't, offside, what isn't. But the way you act and how you look on the field is something you have to learn. Look at the top referee. Look at Ishmael. Does he look professional when he's on the field? Does he look in control? You know, you look at those guys. That's what you got to learn to do. And sometimes that means being an actor. Sometimes you may be inside boiling. But you have to be, and I still remember one player from Rochester after activity says, I got in there, started yelling, I get away, get back. And the guy looks at us, hey, you're the referee. You need to be the calmest guy on the field. <laughs> player said to me, I said, and that, I remember that because it was right. I, you need to be the calmest one, most controlled person on the field, whether all hell is blanking close. Right. So really, if I had gone back to a younger person, says, you could have be, done better in what you look like it acted like on the field when you first started out and you probably would have gotten to where you wanted to faster, you know? So that, my advice would be like, you know, control the things you control, how you look, how you act mm -hmm. off the field, on the field. We have some very good referees that just screw around off the field and we have to let them go because you're representing people, you know, and you got to remember that part. And so that whole thing, when you get to the top level, it's the full package. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's it's not just, oh, wow, he makes a good decision, good foul recognition, blah, blah, blah. You can have all that. But if you're not doing the right things off the field, it doesn't matter. You're not going to make it. So that's my closing statement there. I feel like I would love to see something from Peter Drury. Do you know Peter Drury, the, the, the English commentator that does these poetic things? If yes. You, you know, I wish I could do something like that, you know. Well, we uh, the kid from Rosario with Barky carrying all the dreams of all the referees on his shoulders as he goes on the pitch with his flag, yellow and red, for all the difficulties he has. You know, something like that. Something nice and poetic. He's carrying the dreams of a nation That's right. on the field. The whole nation. Yeah. So Great. This has been way too much fun. We so appreciate your time. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you. So. Yeah.
This has been episode 21 of the Check Complete podcast. Logan Clark, thanks for your time, my Thank friend. Thank you for having me, sir. Wonderful sitting next to you. Thanks for keeping your hands to yourself. Um, we also want to say thank you to Christina Kramer for her uh, segment about error correction recovery. And then, of course, the one and only Greg Barkey for a wonderful interview with him. We appreciate his time. Um, as always, be sure to like and subscribe to the video. Please uh, well, subscribe to the channel, uh, like the video. Uh, follow us on social media, on uh, Twitter and Instagram, at check underscore complete, on the Facebooks, Check Complete Podcast. Um, we would love to hear any ideas you have for future segments or uh, full-on episodes. Email us at info at checkcompletepodcast.com or slide into our DMs on one of those social media channels. If you, for whatever reason, have something negative to say about what we've done here, we invite you to write it on the back of the yellow card used by Simon Marciniak to book Marcus Turum for a simulation in the World Cup final. So if you could just write it on the back of that, send it to us, that'd be great. Um, this has been great. It has. Thank you so much, Logan. We're excited, like I said, to see you continue to do your thing. I'm excited to see where it takes me. Yes. Well, thanks for uh, listening slash watching, whatever you're doing um, of the Check Complete podcast. We appreciate you. Uh, we will also be, just a, a brief announcement, we will also be taking three of the four members of our team to the referee experience at the United Soccer Coaches Convention. Uh, the referee experience will be the 13th and the 14th of January in Philadelphia. Um, so we'll be there for that. It is, there's still plenty of time to register. It's $99. So go to the United Soccer Coaches Convention um, website and click on the referees portion to register for the event. $99. It's a who's who of people that'll be there um, and uh, that, that are honored to be there with me. Okay, maybe I'm honored to be there with them. So <laughs> uh, very much so an exciting group lineup of speakers that we're anxious to connect with. And if you will be there, please reach out. We would love to meet some of you that are um, giving up your time to listen to us ramble and talk about things we love. So uh, if you're watching us before Christmas, have a Merry Christmas and a Happy Holiday Season. Thanks for engaging with the Check Complete podcast. <laughs>